All right, everybody, as you're finding your seats, go ahead and make sure that you have a growth guide and something to take notes with. There are pens and growth guides available here. If you're watching online, you can follow the link on the top to get the uh, growth guide for today. And also, I will once again encourage you to check in to make sure that you let us know that you're here. And we would love for you to put a prayer request in there so we can be praying for you during the week. So today... We are, as you've already heard me mention a couple of times, in the Sermon on the Mount. And I've tried to, over the weeks that we've been doing this, try to give you a sense of the shocking, earth-shattering nature of Jesus' teaching. So much of the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount is so familiar, even to people who are outside of church, that uh, it's sometimes hard to capture, recapture the shock of what Jesus was saying. And uh, we shouldn't have any problem with being shocked by what he talks about today, because here are my headlines for today. Is he serious? Jesus prescribes some rather drastic measures for dealing with sin. And so no doubt throughout history and even down to the time when he gave this message, people were wondering how serious is he? Does he really mean for us to take it that far? Now, Jesus is also talking about marriage. And when he comes back and talks about the nature of marriage, he teaches on marriage and the disciples say, well, I guess it's the single life for me. That's basically the conclusion they came to. It's like, if that's what it means to be married, if that's what it takes to be married, then maybe we should consider a life of singleness. So that was the way that went. Uh, He's talking about divorce today. And so uh, the headline might have been escape clause repealed. Jesus rules divorce out, except did he? Or did he not? And there's a little bit of uh, confusion and a little bit of consternation about that. So that's just an idea of the the headlines that might have been produced by this message. And the question that he's really dealing with in here and that we're going to deal with this morning is, is this. Is the biblical sexual ethic right, realistic, or fair? Is the biblical sexual ethic right, realistic or fair. Now, there are all kinds of questions kind of wrapped up in that. Number one, what even is a biblical sexual ethic? Uh, there, so Sometimes people talk about biblical marriage, and unless you are a, a little bit clear about that, you might be wondering, are we talking about Abraham, who had multiple wives? Are we talking about David, who uh, saw someone that he kind of liked and had his good friend and her husband killed in order that he could cover up impregnating the wife and then taking her as his wife after he killed her husband. Is that biblical marriage? Is that what we're talking about? Obviously not. But what is a biblical sexual ethic? And most people have a good idea of what we mean by that. But then the question becomes, is it right or is it realistic or is it fair? So often, Throughout church history, the biblical sexual ethic or what claims to be a biblical sexual ethic has been used to oppress and to abuse women. Uh, Is it realistic 
Uh, I mean, we are living in 2024. Is, the, is there a sexual ethic that fits with what the Bible teaches that is applicable to today? But, or have things changed so much and is that so far divorced from reality and what is realistic that we can just kind of put that aside? Uh, is it fair? I mean, we've talked about how it's been misused and abused and therefore are, you know, is, are we talking about, are we advocating when we advocate for a biblical sexual ethic? Are we advocating for something that puts people and particularly when women in vulnerable and abusive situations? That would not be fair. So is that even a good thing? Is a biblical sexual ethic even a good thing? What is it? Is it a good thing? And is it realistic? Those are the kinds of questions that come up when we talk about this. Now, I just want to lay a little bit of groundwork that I think is so key to understanding this passage and avoid some of the misunderstandings and misuses that we have seen throughout history when it comes to this teaching. I want to uh, give you a little flashback to the very first message that I did in this series where I was kind of setting up the whole Sermon on the Mount. And you might remember this in number one message for this series, The Indispensable Jesus. You can go back and listen to it on our website. One of the points that I made was that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is demonstrating our need for a Savior. Jesus is demonstrating our need for a Savior. This is so important. I never do this because I'm an introvert and I hate it when people do it to me, but I'm going to do it to you now. Let's say it together. All right. Jesus is demonstrating our need for a Savior. If you miss that point, you will get so far off track with the Sermon on the Mount. But what I believe from the bottom of my heart, one of the main things that Jesus is doing throughout this message is that he is addressing people who think, hey, I'm doing pretty good. There are bad people. There are people that aren't going to make it, that aren't going to make the cut, but I'm not one of those people. I'm one of the good people. I, I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. I have a good track record. God will accept me based on my efforts. And what Jesus is doing is over and over again showing that even people who think that they are doing well and from all outside appearances seem to be doing well are actually just as much sinners, just as much in need of a savior, just as much in danger of judgment as anybody else in the world. And so it's really important that when Jesus goes through these case studies, which is what he is doing right now in this section, he is over and over again hammering the point. You think you're doing okay. You think you're innocent. You think you're not in danger. You're wrong because you just don't realize and appreciate the depth of your sinfulness. So we said that the, the Sermon on the Mount is a study in contrast, and if you're taking notes, that's the first fill in the blank. It's an unusual spot. It's right under the title. Just a reminder that this is a study in contrast, and what Jesus is doing is he is contrasting the people's perception of themselves and what it takes to do righteousness, to live righteously, with what it actually takes. And this harkens back to another message, the fulfilled, number four, where the bottom line was this, Jesus is shifting our focus from superficial conformity to radical transformation, from superficial conformity 
to radical transformation. Remember, he said that he had not come to set aside the law and the prophets, but had come to fulfill it. And then at the conclusion of that section, which is kind of the introduction to this section, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than, unless it exceeds the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, you're not going to cut it, and I'm going to show you why and how. And so after making that point, he then is giving these case studies. We looked at the first one last week. We'll begin with the second one today. Now, today is called No Longer Two, because we are talking about getting real while aiming for the ideal in marriage and sex. And I'm going to use another topic as an illustration, I think, of kind of the direction that I'm going to take and where we're going with this. In the early church, the early days of the church, when persecution began to break out against the church, at some point you were in danger of your life if you were following Jesus. And it became a thing because the, the state was in competition with, the, with your faith and with your church. And so the, the whole idea of emperor worship and allegiance to an emperor was in conflict with allegiance to Jesus as king. And so there, this persecution broke out. And you could, if you would just offer a sacrifice, some kind of token sacrifice to the emperor as a god, then you would be okay. Because you could worship lots of different gods. But if you would acknowledge Caesar as Lord, if you would acknowledge his divinity, that he is the son of God, then you would be fine to worship Jesus or do whatever you want on the side as well, as long as you did that. Now, the problem, of course, was that Jesus, when he was walking on the earth and teaching, said, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. In other words, if you worship someone else or something else, if you deny my place as King of kings and Lord of lords, then you're under judgment. That's not how it works. I will deny you. So what happened was persecution broke out and many people stood fast, even to the cost of their lives and refusing to offer that token sacrifice to Caesar. But there were others who did not and others who under the pressure of the state and under the fear for their lives did offer that sacrifice. And so then the question became, what do we do with these people? If once they, go, once they come out of that and they repent and they wish they hadn't or they wish they could have somehow otherwise escaped and they want to follow Jesus, they want to be restored to the church, what do we do with those people? It was a pastoral concern. Now, what were the choices? It was, you know, you could say, nope, hard line. Jesus said, you deny me before men. You've denied me before men. You are anathema. You are out of the church. You are out of grace. You are out of luck. That's what some people did. That's what some church leaders did. Others looked at it and said, basically, we cannot do that. We cannot write off people because of of a momentary lapse in judgment or a very real fear that they were in for their lives. They love Jesus. They want to be restored to the church. What do we do? And so they made a way for people to be restored. Now, 
what I, the reason I point that out is that in that case and in the case we're talking about today and in a lot of different cases, there is a tension between the ideal and what is the ideal, what is right, what is good, what is better, and what actually in practice happens sometimes. And so often the realities of our world make attaining that ideal very, very challenging. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't aim for the ideal, but we also have to take into account what's really going on in our world and figure out the Jesus way, the biblical way to approach that. We are a biblically-based church, so that means that everything that we teach, everything that we practice, everything that I proclaim, I try to root in the scriptures. Everything about our church is designed to be rooted in the scriptures. The question is, what is the best way and how do we do that in a way that is faithful to the scriptures as a whole? And that's what I hope to do today as we dive into this topic. So obviously today we're talking about sex and marriage and divorce and all of this and kind of wrapped up into that. And my bottom line for you, I think what Jesus is saying in the midst of this is to take sex seriously, to take sex seriously. And I'll explain what I mean by that as we unfold that. But let me give you the main points and then we'll come back around to them. First of all, I think in this passage we see that recognizing, we'll recognize that unfaithfulness happens in the heart. Then Jesus pre- prescribes some pretty dramas- drastic measures and realize the need for dr- dr- drastic measures. And then re- realize the realities of sex. Realize the realities of sex. And then in the end, I'm going to encourage you to set some serious guardrails. We're going to take this seriously. We're going to have to have a serious response. So let's look at the passage together. This is, again, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. This is the New Living Translation, and this is what it says. Quoting Jesus, You have heard the commandment that says, You must not commit adultery. But I say... Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You have heard it said that the loss, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, uh, Lord, I know that everybody is coming to this from a different perspective and different backgrounds and different experiences and different questions. But Lord, I pray that you would speak to every heart. Each one of us needs to hear something through this message today, and only you know exactly what that is. But thankfully, your Holy Spirit is here and present and active, and I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do exactly that. Take this word and apply it to each of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to clear up confusion, to put away falsehood, to put away misconceptions, to 
see things through your heart and with your mind as you have promised to those of us that follow you. And I pray, Lord, that this will all be done to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's look at it together. Again, the bottom line is to take sex seriously and to recognize the first step, recognize that unfaithfulness happens in the heart. This goes all the way back to what we were talking about with the whole purpose of this and the the approach. And that is to say, look, you think you're doing well, but I want to pull back the curtain and for you to realize that you are guilty. You still need help. You need forgiveness and you need another power. And the, the, this harkens back to our paradigm for understanding the Bible. The bottom line for that is the point of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. When you read the Bible, what's the point? The point is to point you to Jesus. What's the point of this passage that's called the Sermon on the Mount? It's to point you to Jesus for your need for a Savior and your need for his power. So it starts out with that familiar pattern that we've already established. You have heard it said, but I say to you, what you heard in the past, Jesus' interpretation and reinterpretation of the commandment, his new law, and then so. You've heard it said, I say to you, so. That's the application step. Well, that repeats in this section as well. Starts out with one of the big 10, the 10 commandments. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. Uh, Adultery, in particular, when a man violates his marriage covenant. Now, it can, of course, women can do this as well, but this is directed primarily at the men, which is an interesting point because in their culture and in their, uh, their setup, it was only the men who could initiate divorce. So that's an interesting thing as well. So it says, you must not commit adultery. And there were many people who would be watching that, like many of us who would say, I have never crossed that line. Whew, I'm Okay. But I say to you, Jesus says, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What's he saying? There's a line in the sand that God has drawn. And we all thought, ooh, okay, I'm doing okay. I'm not on that side of the line. I've stayed on this side of the line. And then he kind of pushes everybody across the line and says, oop, nope, sorry, Sorry, you're, you're all on the wrong side of the line, you know, because, because adultery isn't just something that happens on the outside. It begins and ends sometimes in the heart. And, and this is an important part because a lot of times I thought about it, it was like, oh, like when we were talking about murder last week, it's like, if you are angry with somebody, you're subject to judgment. You, you've murdered them in your heart. And, and I kind of, there were times where I think about, okay, yeah, you don't want to cross that line because anger can lead to murder. You know, it starts in the heart, but it's accomplished later if you don't put a check on it. But that's not what Jesus was saying. It's like, the deed is done. When you are angry at somebody in your heart, you've murdered them in your heart. And he says the same thing here. When you look lustfully at someone, you've already done the deed. You've already committed adultery in your heart. So it's important for, here's why this is important. We need to guard our heart. The Bible tells us to guard our heart above all things. And that's when we take, if we're going to take this seriously, we're going to take our heart seriously, not just our outward actions. And the other thing is going back to the point that for some reason, when we hear 
don't commit a murder, but if you're angry, you commit murder. We're like, yeah, I guess I've murdered somebody in my heart. But we have a lot harder time saying, yeah, I'm an adulterer. Yeah, I'm sexually immoral. But every single one of us is on the guilty side of that line. And so I just want to kind of diffuse the, the defensiveness that we'll naturally feel when we feel like somebody is accusing us of something because we recognize we are all in this together. We're all on the wrong side of this line because it's not just something that happens on the outside. It's something that happens on the inside. So we're all guilty. And we need to take that aspect of it seriously if we're going to take take sex seriously. So recognize that unfaithfulness happens in the heart. And therefore we need to guard our heart and therefore we need to acknowledge our guilt. And again, we do that because we recognize our need for a savior. And then he goes on and honestly prescribes some pretty drastic measures. Uh, And I think the point is not that we are supposed to take it uh, exactly literally, but he's using through hyperbole, uh, uh, he's using hyperbole to make the point that we need to take this seriously to the point of taking drastic measures. This is the application step. I've never given an application step like this in all of my years of preaching. You've heard it said, but I say to you, so, so what's your application step, Jesus? What would we do if we were really going to take sex seriously and take this idea of our hearts seriously? So if your eye, even your good eye, literally your right eye, uh, why it would matter whether it's your right or your left, I don't know, but you know, that's that he's just saying, you know, no, no, no boundaries to this. Even if your good eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. That's a pretty drastic measure. I will never forget when I was growing up and I went in our church, our pastor preached on this. He showed up in the pulpit with his arm, uh, uh, with an empty sleeve and an eye patch, (laughs) an empty sleeve and an eye patch. And we were like, Okay, yeah, taking it seriously. (laughs) Obviously, he did not cut off his arm or gouge out his eye, but I never will forget that. And I was probably like nine or 10 when that happened. So it's pretty serious. But but look at what he says uh, as for the explanation. And this is in the next verse. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, a lot of times people really get messed up on interpreting the scripture and Jesus in particular because they don't recognize when he's using hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggeration to make a point. And this is a great example of that. Uh, There are some people throughout history who have argued that Jesus was was being serious most uh, and taking him literally. Most people do not. Because look at the point he is making. He's saying, it's better for you to lose one part of your body. Where? In the here and now. It'd be better for you to go through life a little bit crippled, a little bit handicapped, a little bit, uh, a little bit um, broken in your body than for your whole body, whole to be thrown into hell, to be under judgment. is like, there's, there's a difference here. And if you're gonna take it seriously, you're gonna be more concerned about eternity and your status in eternity than you will about what's going on in your here and now with your current physical body. He's making a point that we should take it seriously. That, that this is so serious 
And this is very counter. I mean, we do not take sex seriously in our culture. This is so counter to that. He says, you, you need to take this so seriously that even the most extreme measures seem reasonable because it's that important. It's that damaging. It's that significant. It's that consequential. So um, again, he is, look at the contrast here. It's between what's going on in the here and now and what's going on for all of eternity. And again, if we're all guilty, then we all are under judgment. So it once again goes back to the need for Jesus, for salvation, for forgiveness, for writing a new end to our story. And so we'll talk about this at the end as well, but, but, but you will miss the point of all this. Don't get lost in the weeds if you don't recognize that one of the main things that Jesus is doing is saying, look, you're all on this side of the guilty line. So you all need a savior. You all need what happened on the cross to count for you. You all need to be made new on the inside. You need to write a new into your story. And that we do that when we say yes to Jesus as savior and Lord. Now he goes on and he makes the same point uh, with exactly the same words, just substituting the hand for the eye. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, your right hand, your dominant hand, and uh, you could say causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Why? It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Take sex seriously and take the steps to remain pure and to guard your heart and your mind, and your body. Take that seriously as well. Because you recognize that unfaithfulness happens in the heart. That's where it begins and sometimes ends. Uh, Realize the need for drastic measures. Take it seriously. So respond in a serious way. And then to recognize the realities of sex, to recognize the realities of sex. He goes on in the second passage, following the similar pattern, there's no so, there's an implied application in this one, but this is what it says. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. There's an interesting background to this because it's not saying divorce your wife. When you do, give them a certificate. It's just talking about, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, a case study where uh, a person has divorced his wife. Now, this is kind of interesting, and this goes to the pastoral aspect of this as well, that in the original Old Testament law, the punishment for adultery for both the man and the woman was death by stoning. So you didn't have to worry about remarriage and all that kind of stuff because uh, it was taken care of, right? But even in Moses' own lifetime, they had begun to figure out ways of dealing with this. And so you have this idea of a certificate of divorce. And um, and uh, again, a little bit of a sideline. So often the Bible has been misused and abused in order to subjugate women. And uh, the whole idea that divorce could only be initiated by a man reflected their culture. But the certificate of divorce, like many things that we misunderstand, was actually a way of protecting the woman in that relationship. Because if she had been cast off and left to her own devices, then, and without that certificate of divorce, she would have been viewed as damaged goods and could not be remarried and could not be, uh, her life would be ruined by that. So by giving her a certificate of divorce, she, she is allowed to make a new life 
to go on with her life. It would protect her. It would make sure that she was provided for. It was a protection. So even in Moses' own lifetime, you see the, the ideal and the real and trying to work at that in a way that is just and deals with the realities of our broken world but still aims for the ideal. So that's kind of interesting. But it's uh, what had happened in the brokenness of man's heart is that it became a thing where, oh, they mentioned that there's a certificate of divorce thing, so that means I can just get rid of my wife if I don't want to have a wife anymore, if she doesn't please me, if she's been unfaithful, if she cooks a dinner that I don't like. Literally, that was one of the arguments. Then I can just divorce her, and all I have to do is write a certificate of divorce and then be gone with her. And um, and they were using a... Uh, adaptation to the brokenness of the world and treating it like it was the ideal. And Jesus is saying, none of, having none of that. He says, you've heard this said. This has been your tradition. You're now, you're now just divorcing left and right for virtually no reason. And he says, but I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And I want to focus on that, but don't miss the, bl- the, the blurred out part as well. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery, men and women, women and men. But I want to focus on this because this is, this is the, uh, something that has created a lot of question for me. The first thing that I noticed when I said it is like, okay, the man decides to divorce his wife and somehow she's guilty, causes her to commit adultery? What is going on there? That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't make sense. And again, if you recognize the context, it clears up so much. Um, The the first thing, and I put this in your notes, so you want to look at this because this isn't isn't on screen because I found this after I finished that. So let's look at the different ways that this has been translated. Uh, bottom of the second page, second from the bottom. This is a translation from one of the commentators, but I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife for any reason except sexual unfaithfulness makes her the victim of adultery. I actually think that's a better translation because what it's saying is through no fault of her own, she is being cast out just because on on the whim or decision of the man. And so she becomes the victim. Now, another way of translating it, and this is the one that I did put in there at the bottom of that page, and this emphasizes the situation with the woman. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress. That kind of fits with what we just said. It's, it's, it's his, she's the victim. Unless she has already made herself by that by sexual promiscuity. So it's not an exception that to justify divorce. It's saying, look, the, 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 the sexual relationship binds you together in this covenant marriage. And if you break that covenant, then you make her the victim or unless she's already broken that covenant herself. Either way, damage has been done. Damage has been done. And so a little bit later in chapter 19 of Matthew, uh, Jesus 
comes back around and addresses this issue a little bit more in depth. I'm only going to pull one verse out of that section because I think it's applicable here. I think it helps us to understand what we're talking about is the realities of sex. What does, what does sex do for us? What is the nature of a sexual relationship? And in that passage in, verse, in chapter 19, verse 6, it says, Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. They're no longer two, but one. Don't split them apart because God has joined them together. Um, this is a very familiar verse. A lot of times it's used at the end of a wedding ceremony. The Spice Girls have sung about two becoming one. I mean, it's pretty ubiquitous, right? Okay, uh, but what is it talking about? It's talking about the nature of, of the sexual relationship. How does this work? And I have a couple of illustrations because our current uh, picture is like post-it notes, but the reality is that it's more like a weld. Did you know that post-it notes were discovered by accident in 3M, the company 3M, they were working in the late 60s at creating stronger, more powerful adhesives. And instead by accident, one of the guys named Spencer Parker, I think, uh, Spencer Silver, Spencer Silver discovered this really relatively weak adhesive that you could put the, to these things together and you could separate them with no damage and no difficulty and no residue. You could stick them together. They would stay. You could separate them and everything would be okay. Does that sound familiar? Sound like our picture, our culture's picture of the sexual relationship now? Hey, no big deal. Just a bodily function. There's something that happens. Just that's, and we're all good, right? You know, keep going. You know, no damage, no problem. The reality of the situation by God's design is that it's more like a weld. This is an actual weld by an actual welder. And uh, I looked at it, I was like, this is perfect. Because this was actually at one point two different pieces of metal that were joined together and then bent to stress test them to show that they would hold together. I look at that and if it weren't for there being, you know, some a shiny part there, I would have no idea this was once two. This is a weld. God designed the sexual relationship to be a weld for your relationships. Not a post-it note, a weld. And that's why, oh, there's so many applications to this. That's why outside of marriage, inside of marriage, sex is a great thing because you know what it does? It binds you in a way that nothing else does. Irrationally binds you to that other person. That is a great thing in marriage. Outside of marriage, that's a disaster, Right? Because what I, want, what I want for my children, for you, for everybody, I want you to be really clear-headed when you're making a decision about who you're going to marry, who you're going to bind your life together with. I want you to be objective, informed, uh, uh, not in any kind of rush. You know, I, I want you to see things clearly. What does the sexual relationship do? It binds you irrationally to that person. Wonderful in marriage. Horrible idea if you're not married, right? You want to be as clear 
uh, as possible. The other thing is, is that it gives us a little insight into why, is, why does Jesus seem to make such a big deal about divorce? I mean, uh, you know, wh- why is it such, can you imagine breaking this apart? The, the damage, the strength, the, the, it, that's, that's tough. It's not this, I guarantee you. It's this. Why does, why does Jesus make such a big deal about it? Because he cares about people. And he doesn't want there to be that kind of damage. Now, does that mean it can't happen or it won't happen? No, we live in a broken world. And sometimes that weld is broken. But he wants you to thrive. He, wants, he loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants you to make good decisions. And that's why he is going to tell you the truth about what he's done when he created you the way he created you and designed sex to be, uh, to be enjoyed in the context of the marriage relationship. Now, I gave you a little bit more insight because here's the other thing I want to do. There's not a, every one of us is on the guilty side of this line. And every one of us, this, is gonna, this message is going to touch us in different ways because we, we've all got a history. We're all broken. We're all guilty. And, uh, and the question becomes, well, how do, I, how do I put all the pieces back together again? You know, you've got, you, you thought it was this and you've got this, but it's not one. It's in pieces and there are pieces everywhere. What do you do with that? And I think it's helpful to understand the context. Jesus is trying to show us the need for salvation, for the need for forgiveness, but he's also trying to spare us from difficulty and describe the very nature of the relationship. So I gave you two quotes, uh, two extended quotes in the growth guide, and I want you to look at them. They're at the top of the third page, and I'm going to emphasize that the context is king because so often we take our context and our history and our background and read the scriptures with that, which is understandable. But it's important for us to understand how it would have been heard by the, the original hearers as well. There are two contexts that I want to highlight. The first is the cultural context. The question is, how would the original hearers have naturally understood Jesus' words? When in Matthew 19.9, Matthew speaks of except for the case cause of infidelity, his audience would have understood this as a legal charge, interpreting these words in line with the typical meaning of infidelity as grounds for divorce, namely sexual unfaithfulness to the marriage. Jewish and Roman law, in fact, both mandated divorce for these grounds. I think one of the most helpful things, let me kind of put that into my own words, is that uh, the, the, the Bible is describing this kind of bond He's saying when that is broken through infidelity, that bond is broken and you, you, you have to deal with the reality of that situation. It's, it's, that's just the way it is. And in their culture, not the ideal, not a prescription, but they would have understood, oh, if infidelity has happened, the marriage bond has been broken. No, we don't stone people anymore, but we do divorce and that is the way of moving on and making the best of that situation and allowing for freedom in that situation. So he's not prescribing divorce. That was the problem that they had in that second passage. But he's saying, if you take seriously the idea of the bond that happens in marriage, then when it's broken, 
you deal with the reality of that situation as well. And so it's not like you are, and, and in fact, here's another pastoral situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the church at Corinth and he's saying, you know, some of you were believers, became believers after you were married. Your husband or your wife didn't come along for the journey, the faith journey with you. What do we do? You don't divorce them, but if they leave, you're not forced to stay with them as well. You are not bound, and that is the same language that is used for the wife or husband after divorce. They're not bound to that relationship anymore. There's a bond that has been broken. So it's interesting to think about, you know, well, what does that mean? But if you realize this, and you realize when that's broken, there is a brokenness there that cannot be repaired. So what do you do with that? The second context that I wanted to highlight, not only the cultural context, how they would have understood it, and to bottom line is they would have understood it as the end of the, uh, of the relationship and the freedom to move on. There's also a theological context, the one flesh union that God designed into sexual intimacy. Adultery does violence against the one flesh union in the marriage and binds a married person to another in a way that is inappropriate and harmful to everyone involved. And for an example of how this applies, even before the marriage, consider Joseph's dilemma in Matthew chapter 1. Wrongly assuming Mary's premarital infidelity, it did not occur to him that the betrothal and the marriage to which it must otherwise lead could be regarded as still valid. What what am I saying there? There's a theological context as well. This one one flesh union that is created by the sexual bond. And that's why there's one last kind of shared sexual ethic that we have in our culture today, and that is you be faithful to your spouse, right? I mean, very few people will argue against that. There will always be some, but, but that's the shared cultural ethic. What if, and a way of looking at it from a, perhaps the biblical perspective is, what if that faithfulness begins when you're still single? What if, you know, because you're not married. Oh, we're going to get married. We love, yeah, okay. There's so many times where people ha- have said that, but they never end up until you stand before someone like me and say, I do, you're not married, right? But what if your faithfulness to your spouse extended to that i'm going to uh, my i'm going to reserve myself i'm going to reserve sexual intimacy for my spouse and until you're married and until you're in that relationship and that's kind of the perspective there as well what am i saying there's a theological context to this as well the reason it's so damaging and the reason that god wants to protect us from that is the nature of the relationship that he has designed now this is an important part. It's not going to take long. But as we conclude, it's like, how do we handle this pastorally? Because what, what I've done through the course of this message has made everybody guilty, right? Nobody, nobody gets out of this scot-free. But that's kind of the point, is that we need forgiveness. So how do you move forward in that? Um, one of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 5.17. And pastorally, how do I handle this? Um, Everybody has a checkered past. But when you are in Christ, here's how it's described. Now we look inside, and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah, anyone who is in Christ, gets a fresh start, is created new, the old life is gone, a new life has emerged. 
Jesus is putting us all on the guilty side of the equation, but he's not leaving us there. He's doing that to bring us to the point where we can recognize we can be forgiven. We can be changed from the inside. We can have a fresh start, and that's what he wants for us. And so when I approach this pastorally, yeah, we all have checkered past, but how do we go forward in a way that is healthy and good and redemptive? That's more what I'm concerned about. I'm not so concerned about your history, about your track record. I'm much more concerned about your trajectory. What's the direction you are moving in? And also, we don't, we don't stop messing up when we are believers in Jesus. So there's provision for that as well. One of the most famous verses in the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm much more concerned about going forward. You blew it. You're in a situation where it's not helpful and not good, and you recognize that, and you've substituted your own wisdom and your own perspective for God's perspective, and that is just not gonna work out for you. So let's confess our sins. And then what's it say? He's, faith, he's gonna be faithful and righteous. What will he do? He'll forgive you of your past and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. There's a looking backward part of that. I'm gonna fix that. I'm gonna forgive it. And also a moving forward. I'm gonna work in you so that you can start doing the right things and treating people right and be moving in the right direction. I don't, don't allow this passage to be used to force you to stay in an abusive relationship. That is not healthy. That is not good. Don't, don't let this passage be used to have you stuck in a, in, a, in a pattern of perpetual guilt over the past. That's not what this is about. This is bringing you to the point of freedom. Don't get stuck in this idea of, oh, you know, I can never move forward. There is a new story to be written if you will allow God to do it. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to be free. So he's going to describe the reality of the situation, take care of the past, and write a new ending to your story. So today we've been talking about sex. I'm going to encourage you to take sex seriously, to recognize that unfaithfulness happens in the heart, to realize the need for drastic measures, and to recognize the realities of sex. So what do we do with that? My, per, my prescription, my encouragement, how do you make this practical? What's your game plan? Is to set serious guardrails. Let me go through a couple. If you are not married yet, then let me encourage you to take this prescription very seriously. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul prescribes, don't team up with, don't be unequally yoked, is what it literally says, with those who are unbelievers. What, uh, that even is, that the primary application he's making there isn't even to marriage, but it definitely applies to marriage. Uh, my, pers- my, my encouragement, if you are single, is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, run as fast and as hard in the direction of Jesus as you possibly can, and then look around and see who's catching up with you and see who's running alongside of you. That's, that's the best prescription I can give. But d- d- avoid, the best time to avoid all of these problems and difficulties before they even happen. This is the picture of the yoke. You are tying yourself permanently and powerfully to another person 
so don't do that unless you're going in the same direction and going in the direction that you, that you want to go. So that's part of it. Uh, there are other guardrails. What can you, you know, is it the media that you partake of? Is it, you know, they're just relationships that you know you need to put a hard stop on or pull back from. What is, what is it? If you were going to really take this seriously and avoid the heartache and pain and destruction that this, can, that, that, that this, this issue leads to, what are you, you going to do? Let's set some serious guardrails. And then one last encouragement that God is working in you. This is one of my favorite verse from Philippians. We've, God is working in you, giving the desire, desire and power to do what pleases him. What is this saying? You've you got to check your pass. You're not going to get it perfectly. But God is at work in you, and he's giving you the right want to, and he's giving you the power to do what pleases him. When you say yes to him, he has done that by the person of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You will have what you need. In your growth guide, just going to give you a couple of different resources because there's so many things that we aren't able to cover, but I listed all of these here. Uh, one, of the best way, uh, one of the best books I've found for those of you who are single or dating, Andy Stanley's Love, Sex, and Dating much more about becoming the right person. When you become the right person, you will find the right person. Another one, Love, Sex, and Lasting Relationships by Chip Ingram. Uh, Good, especially for those that are at the beginning of that journey. The Game Plan, the Men's 30-Day Strategy for Attaining Sexual Integrity. There are resources out there if pornography and the like are an issue for you. Check them out. This is Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Married, Lee Strobel and Leslie Strobel. Leslie became a Christian, was married to a confirmed and committed atheist. When that happened, he thought his life was over. And uh, so eventually he did become a follower of Jesus and they wrote this book together. If that's your situation, that's worth checking out as well. Uh, Hope for the Separated by Gary Chapman. We'll visit him again in a second. Uh, love and respect, the love he, she most desires, the respect he most desperately needs, one of the most transformational uh, books for your relationship. And I even have that in large print. You might be too old to read it in small print, but you're not too old to turn your marriage around. So check that out. Uh, then another really helpful book, The, love, the Five Love Languages, also by Gary Chapman. You, uh, you need to check that out if you're married. And they, even, they have like versions for everybody. There's a men's version of the five love languages. There's a singles version of the love fi- five love languages. There's one for parents. There's, there's love languages for everybody, so check it out. <laughs> What's my point? There are resources, and you can get the help that you need, and you can have a fulfilling, joyful wholeness to your sexual life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, too much to handle in one sitting. And Lord, uh, only you can take it from here. So we ask that you would do that. Give each of us the wisdom to know what we need to do with what we've heard today and the courage and power to do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.